You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today's episode is going to be something rather unique. It's an interview with Alice Morrison, a modern-day adventurer and explorer. I've had many opportunities to interview people on the show, including individuals we today might call adventurers and travelers. But I really liked Alice because of her unique experiences, including how she got into the adventuring business and the way she approaches her life as the Indiana Jones for girls, as one reviewer described her. Let me give you a little background on Alice Morrison. She was born in Edinburgh, but grew up in Africa in the Middle East. She studied Arabic and Turkish, and after college taught in Cairo while exploring the region. This included hitchhiking on military trucks into the desert and sleeping with stray dogs in Luxor. After that, she moved to London to pursue a career in journalism. Her knowledge of Arabic in the Middle East landed her various jobs producing content for and about the region. After some time as a news editor for the BBC, she became the CEO of a media company. However, in 2011, after 10 years, her company was merged with another organization, leaving her out of a job. And thus, Alice decided, at the age of 48, to start a new phase of her life, which would turn into quite a career. She entered the Tour d'Afrique, a 100-day, 12,500-kilometer, or 7,800-mile bike race from Cairo to Cape Town. Bitten by the adventure bug, she then took part in the Marathon de Sable, which is six marathons in six days across the Sahara. She had never run a marathon prior to entering, much less six of them. After that, her life as a traveler and adventure was set. North Africa, the Himalayas, South America, Central America, it's all pretty amazing. In 2019, she became the first woman to walk the Dra River in Morocco, trekking 1,500 kilometers, or nearly 1,000 miles, across the desert in the mountains. Through all of this, Alice has produced four books about her travels, as well as a BBC show titled Morocco to Timbuktu, an Arabian Adventure. She chronicles many of her travels via a podcast as well as on her social media channels. What I love about Alice Morrison was her approach toward traveling and exploring. Her early exploits were participating in extreme races and contests, but that's not really the case anymore. It's not about beating records or doing something no one has ever done or trying to push herself to the limit. Now, Alice is an explorer. She loves to walk in the footsteps of early explorers and travelers, discovering a world that is not that much different than it was hundreds of years ago. And through this all, Alice displays a rare joy and love of learning, as well as experiencing the world around her and the people that she meets. 
I was also fascinated by Alice's desire to become a traveler and adventurer at the time in her life when many of us are trying to figure out how to retire, much less cross a desert on a camel. So please take a listen to Alice and enjoy some of her wonderful stories. You can learn more about Alice Morrison by going to her website, alicemorrison.co.uk. I put a link to her site on my own website, explorerspodcast.com, as well as in the show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alice Morrison. Hello, I want to welcome to the Explorers Podcast, adventurer and explorer, Alice Morrison. Alice is joining us from Morocco, which is the first time I have ever talked to anyone from Africa. So Alice, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Alice, as you heard from the introduction, is quite an interesting lady. And so I have a, just a bunch of questions I want to talk to her about being an explorer and being an adventurer and a traveler in this day and age. So uh, I'll just kick things off. Alice, exploring as we think of on the show is very different than what it was 100 or 200 and 500 years ago. In the past, it was mostly men heading off into the unknown in search of often fame and glory, but usually money. But they were filling in the map of the world. They were filling in the blank spaces. But, you know, most of that is done nowadays. And with that in mind, what is exploring today and what does it mean to you personally? Yeah, this is a great question to kick off with. And it's quite a philosophical one, actually. I believe we all have an explorer within us. And exploring is really about opening your eyes, opening your ears, opening your mind and going out into the world to see what you can see, hear and experience. You know, we have fantastic information now about lots and lots of different places. And so, and of course, the map is really filled in. So exploring has become different and it, it, it always feels a bit strange to me because we've still got this pressure on us to do something for the first time, to be the first to. But I'm heavily aware where, you know, I'm very interested in the Middle East and North Africa. That's my patch, really, um, and Africa generally. And, of course, people have walked this continent, these continents, since humans first got off on both their legs. So saying that you've been somewhere for the first time, for example, is no longer what exploring is about, because A, it's probably not true, and B, it's irrelevant. So for me, for what I like about exploring is I go and see things for myself, and then I also try and communicate them in as authentic and genuine and kind of live in the moment a way as possible to other people who won't have the luxury that I have of time and the ability to do these things. And I really like to go into the very, very wild places, you know, where I hope actually there, there haven't been footprints before me. And then sometimes where there have been footprints, and that is a complete delight. So exploring is definitely a different thing than it was. And I think we have to be very aware as well of the, of the age we live in and the different world we live in, even from 100 years ago. It's very, very different now. So exploring really is, I think, for everybody and something that we can all do, but it, it still has that excitement for me. You have a very human approach to exploring. I think some of the great moments are with the people as much as the places and stuff like that. Is that a big difference now than say what we would have done, you know, like you say, a hundred or 200 years ago? Well, actually, I, want, I don't know is the answer to your question. I wonder if it's partly that, you know, I'm immersed in the culture that I'm looking at. So I'm living in Morocco. I speak Arabic. I'm learning one of the Berber languages, Tashlahit. Um, 
I'm, I'm very interested in the area I, I live and work in. So for me, I'm able to communicate with the people in a way that perhaps explorers in the past wouldn't have been able to, but some of them were. Many, you know, for example, the guys that went to Timbuktu, they, they went in disguise, they spoke Arabic. Um, one of the French ones went in disguise as a Jew and was asked to be a rabbi at lots of different events. So I think for me, the people are really important because I always need to make a human connection. I don't know if it's a gender thing. I'm often walking with men and then, you know, I get that excitement and pleasure of, of working in a male environment. And then when I, when we, whenever we get to a community, of course, I'm shuffled off with the women because the, the area I work and explore in, um, men and women are often living very socially separate lives. So I have that interest as well. So um, is it that I'm very, I'm very interested in people. I love landscape. I love walking. But also I think when I'm trying to communicate my experiences outside of myself, I think most humans like to know what other humans are thinking. So I do focus on that. Then let me ask this. What are advantages or disadvantages or the, or the unique things about being a woman? who does go out and do this as opposed to a man. And I know you've talked about this in some of your stuff and it's really fascinating. So I wanted to hear that. Well, first of all, I'd like to pay tribute to all my male colleagues that I work with and that I've been inspired by. And those amazing explorers who, you know, were so brave and risked and often lost their lives in order to fill out that map. But I guess what I can do as a woman now in these times is Number one is my superpower is I can talk to men and I can talk to women. And we, we touched upon it lightly. The, the societies I'm particularly interested in, the Middle East, North Africa, Africa, men and women are separate. They have separate roles. They have clearly defined gender roles still. And as a woman, I can talk to the women and I'm also treated as an honorary male. So I can talk to the men as well. Whereas a man in my position would never be allowed to talk to the women. And in fact, one of the funny things when I was doing my last, well, my second last expedition actually across Morocco, we had to rely on the Sahrawi nomads for water because there just was no water. The climate change is deep and brutal in the Sahara. So we were relying on nomads to get us water. We'd see a tent in the distance. We'd head straight for it. And when we got near the tent, Lahu, who was one of my team, was like, they call me Zahra in Arabic. Zahra, Zahra, get up to the front. You're our key. And what he meant was that as a woman, I could approach the tent because, of course, usually the women would be in the tent and the men would be out working with the herd. In this case, usually the herd of camels, perhaps of sheep. And one day we got to this tent. I was the key. I went to the front. I went into the tent. The Zahrawi women were there. We, had a, we were having a lovely glass of tea. And suddenly I heard a kind of a yell, Zahra, get out, get out here. So I zipped out of the tent and there was the husband clearly running towards my men, our camels, my three men and our six camels, all of whom were also male, with a massive great big stick. Because what he had seen was men approaching his women folks. So I think that gives you an idea of what it was like. And, you know, when he saw my little head bob out the tent, I was like, no, no, no. It's okay. I'm here. I'm with the women. Um, peace was restored and we all had a glass of tea together. But it's that kind of society. So I think what I bring really mainly is that I'm able to access women and girls and their stories. And those stories are often not told. 
historically they're not told. These are small domestic, well, they're not small, but they're domestic stories. And I find them fascinating. I don't know how much you know about the Lewis and Clark expedition back in the early 1800s in the United States. For a long stretch of it, they brought with them a uh, 16-year-old Shoshona woman, Sacagawea. And according to the stories, when people would see her, many of the native tribes would see her, they'd go like, oh, those people aren't a threat because war parties don't go running around with women. And so it's sort of the same thing, you know, where where you're, oh, you're not threatening because you have this this lady with you. That's great. I love that story. So yeah, I read something like that in one of your blogs or listened to it on one of the podcasts. I love that idea that you have this uniqueness to get deeper into the culture than typically that a man might do. So, so now I'm going to ask another question, and that is, you have been to a lot of different places, and I know you mentioned uh, a lot in Middle East and, and North Africa and Africa, but also, you know, you've been to the Himalayas, you've been to Costa Rica, you've been to South America, so you've been uh-huh. all over the world. What are the places that surprised you? That, you know, you were either good or bad. You know, what are the places where you just go, I never expected that to be so great or so disappointing or whatever? One of the places that really surprised me was Guatemala. Um, I went on a mountain biking adventure there, which was insanely difficult because we're mountain biking up and down volcanoes. So you're either dying going up the hill or taking your life in your hands going down the hill. And I actually, me and my bike actually fell off the side of a mountain at one stage and was saved by a tree. Um, But Guatemala surprised me because I I knew very little about it. And, you know, getting there, seeing the culture, seeing the indigenous people with very strong history, culture, traditions, you know, the national dress um, and the way people were with us. And again, just one of the, just back to the women thing, I was, we were in a, a very small village, really in a remote area. And we were with the bikes. We were actually walking with the bikes. I think we'd gone to have a lunch at a cafe. And these two women came up to me and my Spanish is very rudimentary, but I got what they were saying. They were like, because I was with a group of four men, uh, five, six men, in fact, two guys and four, four, four male guests. There were no other women. And they came up to me and they said, are you okay? Are they beating you? because I was so covered in bruises from falling off my bike. So I had to reassure them that no, these were very nice men and they were not beating me. And what was nice about that was that kind of solidarity. I thought, how lovely these women are actually, and they were very beautifully dressed in traditional Central American clothing, Guatemalan clothing, uh, but they took the time to come and make sure that, you know, one of the sisters was okay, even though I must have looked so weird to them. You know, there I was in Lycra and bruises, but I think that surprised me. This is a kind of a similar vein. Is there any place or experience in your travels that is just your favorite? The place that you just say, this was just amazing for me. I mean, I love Morocco. I have a very special place in my heart for Morocco because I live here and because I've walked the full length and it took such a long time and I I got to know it so deeply and I I formed such a strong bond with the people here. But I can't say somewhere's the best. Some things have really touched me. For example, when I was a girl, I lived in Uganda, the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon, the Ruanzori, looking out over to the Congo. And my I remember as a child, a young child, probably six or seven, my father training 
to walk the ruined stories and he'd run up and down the escarpment he'd come back all bright red and sweaty and then something like 40 possibly a bit less 35 years later I went back and did the same walk in the ruined Zori mountains as my father's still alive but his memory's gone a bit but I went and did the same walk almost as a tribute to my parents my father and a kind of a a remembrance of childhood and when I got to the where all the, the mountain guys are, the Rosary National Park, I brought my dad's old receipts and his photographs with me. And I showed them to all my African guides, all my Ugandan guides. And they recognized some people that was like their uncle or their grandfather who'd been porters in my dad's time. So that experience certainly has stayed with me as one that I find very moving. That's really great. I love that story. I think when people hear your personal story, they, they, I mean, it's impressive. But I also think people are going to be a little jealous. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I say that because you're doing things a lot of people dream about, or they think like, oh, I wish I could have been one of these people and had this challenge in my life. And I think that they didn't get to be this person that, that they see in history. And you have. And the amazing thing is you didn't start doing this until... Uh, later in your life, until you're in your late 40s. So how did that happen? It happened, it was really a progression. So I think there's a few things, if you like, if you think about seeds in the soil. So I prepare, so my soil, my soil, if you like, there were a few things that predisposed me. One, I'd been brought up a lot of my life in Africa and the Middle East. So I, I had a love for different places. My parents had never taught me any form of you can't do it because it just never came up. So everything was always possible. Um, I had never wanted to get married and have children. I always really valued my freedom for whatever reasons from a very early age. So if you like, I, I reached 48, 49, and I was untrammeled. I was free. And I'd also been very successful in my career, fortunately. I you know, had some lucky breaks and I'd worked hard. So I had a kind of a, a backdrop, if you like, of, of security and some level of financial security. And then when I was 48, I was the chief executive, or 47 actually, 47, I was the chief executive of a media company. And for various reasons, we had to fold the company, fold it into a larger company. And that was very difficult psychologically. You know, if you've ever had to, if you've ever been made, what we say in the UK is made redundant, if you have been sacked because your job no longer exists, or you've had to sack people because their job no longer exists, it's a very, very bruising post process. We call it being made redundant. Um, so this all happened, and I just thought, I've got, I want to do something different, so I'm going to cycle across Africa from Cairo to Cape Town. It, it'd been in my head for a bit, and now I have time, and I had a little bit of money, so I did it. So it really took off from there. So what I came to move along this path towards becoming a full-time adventurer and a full-time explorer. And it was all the things I'd learned in my life up until this point have all continued to help me. But I'd got some financial security. I was free. And I thought, you know, you haven't done things that give most people the most joy in their lives, like get married and have children. So why don't you give yourself the joy of really using your freedom? And I think that was the that was like the spur. And then, of course, you know, I started discovering things and my feet went down one path and then they found a fork and they went down there. And I literally started exp almost exploring my life 
as much as and my opportunities as much as exploring countries. Like I said, people are, I think we'll hear this and be jealous um, because oh, I, I get, <laughs> well, one of the most common questions or not questions, comments people get to me is they say things like, I wonder how I would have reacted in the situation and so forth. And I wonder if, if I could have done this. So it's, it's really amazing that you have done this and you've done it at a time in your life where you'd be thinking well, how do I retire at this point, you know, um, <laughs> as opposed to how do I go and, and, and abuse my body and so forth. So that's, it's, it's, it's a great, great thing. I do want to talk a little bit now about some of the things you've done and, um, and you have done some cool stuff. You have crossed literally thousands of miles of nothingness in some places at a time. You've gone mountains and deserts. Uh, you've ridden camels and when you are out doing this, obviously it's a very different world in, in 2022, but how is it not that different anymore in, you know, you're riding camels. That's the same thing that was done 2000 years ago. Absolutely. Um, so I think the interesting thing is actually how tied we are to our past and how many connections there are. History is not some kind of dead inanimate subject. And as everyone who listens to this podcast is probably a history buff knows, we live our history. You know, we are part of it. We're, and it's always fascinating to me how we develop history. But what I find wonderful is, for example, if I'm, when I'm on the expedition, when I was on expedition in uh, Morocco, I had a train of six camels. I had three Amazir, which is the correct word for Berber guides. So there's the four of us, three men, me, they're all Muslim, I'm Christian, they're, we've got the six camels who are all male and on heat for several months of the expedition, which was a nightmare. Um, and we're literally walking across the world. And for several weeks, not just like for an hour or a day, but for several weeks in the Sahara, there's very little to see. You know, you are literally, you're just, we're walking at about five kilometers an hour because that's the rate the camels walk at. And once you've loaded them, you're going to walk till you bivouac and unload them because you don't want to put them under unnecessary stress. And we were doing exactly what people have done for centuries in this region, for centuries and centuries. And I loved that feeling. We were doing exactly the same thing. Our camels were carrying our water. We were constantly on the lookout for water. And that was quite difficult. That was quite stressful. But we were constantly on the cap for water. We had to get from A to B. Brahim was navigating using the sun and the wind. And then, as I say, we had several weeks in the Sahara when the wind was blowing into my left ear strongly every day. It was a nightmare. I got to the stage where at some points I was counting ants just to see something alive. But it was we were in this rhythm. So you're in this very natural rhythm that I, 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 well, we know, we know that humans migrated at the earliest times, you know, to fill the world. So it felt very much a natural and fantastic thing to do. But you, you have to strip away. There's nothing, there's you, there's your companions, there's your task for the day. And then there's keeping yourselves alive and well in a very hostile environment. And that is what explorers have done since time immemorial and in fact if you go back to earlier man hunter-gatherer and to the you know the, the pre-humans that walked from Africa to Europe that's what we've always done so I felt that strongly and just one thing that happened that always really 
came back to me was one day we were walking through Sahara, we had no water, and we came across, like almost like a miracle, in the middle of the dunes, a pool of fresh, clean water. And it's got a special word, it's called an amda in Tashlihit, which is one of the Berber languages that the men use. So we came across this amda, and of course, we're, we're all like ecstatic because we, so first of all, we filled all of our water carriers, then the camels all were sucking up this water because you know how they do that. <laughs> and then it was shaking their heads and showering. And me and the men, we, we all got our feet and our hands in. And I was actually, at one point, I was just taking a big, a big mouthful of this fresh water. And I looked over and one of the camels says, having a big wee right opposite me. I was like, oh, well, never mind. I'm sure it won't do me any harm. But we camped that night about I'd say about 150 meters away, maybe 200 meters away. We just camped in the sand. So it's the sand with a few amrad, acacia trees, which the camels like to eat. So we're camped there. We're all happy because we've got water. We've had a wash. You know, things are good. And in that bivouac, we found loads of Stone Age tools. There were stone. I mean, I've got a spoon, a knife. And we, we did things like we cut, you know, we used the knife to cut our, our cords and just try it all out. And, you know, that's part of it. So history is this thing where you, when you feel that connection, that really vibrant connection to you, it's very exciting. That's great. And that's actually going to lead me to, um, that's going to lead me to my next question. You have been described as Indiana Jones for girls, which is a very cool moniker. Um, Are there moments where you actually felt like that, where you felt like you were discovering something? where you found something that no one had ever seen, where you had been someplace that had been lost. What does that feel like? It's, it's, I mean, Indiana Jones for Girls is cool because it, everyone kind of gets what we're doing. You know, there's snakes, there's deserts, there's, there's temples. Um, in my last expedition in, in the Atlas Mountains, we found dinosaur footprints that as were completely unrecorded, uncharted. So I can only assume, you know, people may have seen them, but not known where they were because the village we were in, they didn't know about the dinosaurs. They didn't know about the footprints. They were like, what are you talking? And we were, we were telling them, you know, this could be really good for your business because people can go out and see with their own eyes this, this panoply of different footprints from clearly from different animals, from some of the huge herbivores, some which were clearly, bir- you know, those enormous birds of prey with the with the, the forked feet. That's a terrible description. Um, and that feeling was one of true excitement. And it's not, it's about finding it yourself, to be honest, um, and about being that close up and personal and about, you know, you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere, you just, I, usually you're climbing up something ridiculous and you still have to get down, which is always a bit intimidating. And then you find something, you think, oh, is it a dinosaur footprint? Oh, let me think, is there a trail of them? Is there more than one? Um, does it look like one? And you're, you're doing all this kind of analysis. Now, I'm, I don't know, I, some of them were very clear, but it, it's that excitement of discovering for yourself, I think, and investigating for yourself that is, is the thing that's very motivating eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When I cover historic explorers, one of the things I love to try to understand is why or why not things work. And I found preparation is, is such a key thing. And um, when you are preparing to head off into a desert or on a mountain or whatever, what are the things you really focus on to help make what you're doing a success? Um, get the right team. Some of the male explorers who come before me are very good at stuff that I am not good at at all. Like I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm really bad at navigation, number one. I don't actually have a sense of direction at all. So I have to really, really, really concentrate. Um, so I make sure I've got a really, really good team with me who can do the things that I can't do. And then I do the things that I can do. So for me, all the explorations are a team effort um, and the people who are with me are always credited and talked about. That's perhaps, again, why you say I like the people, because they're such a big part of it. So, yeah, that's my key. And definitely to prepare, find people who know a lot more about where you're going than you do. And then off you trot. The thing I will say that I always feel in the preparation, and it's not necessarily a thing so much as a, as a skill, and that is communication. And um, you say what you bring to the table, you have the ability to communicate in a lot of the places that you go. And so many times failure happens because people just can't talk to each other. And that's interesting. And like I say, I'm always fascinated by why does this thing, you know, why are these 42 people dead or whatever, you know? And, uh, you know, it's, it's just great to, it's interesting to see what you guys do. Well, it's very interesting that you talk about danger because danger is an interesting thing in in exploration because there is danger involved and you know on the one hand I think we have a bit of a false sense of security about our world because most of us myself included have lived in very urban environments and I've got access to water and electricity if it's a thunderstorm outside I can go into my house that kind of thing and then when you're exploring when you're out really in the wilderness all of those certainties are taken away and there, I've had some quite frightening experiences and danger is a real thing. And then if you look at political danger, if you like, danger from other humans, that is fascinating to me because we live in an era now, the area that I work in, of course, the biggest threat is from extremism. I'm afraid it is. It's from particularly Islamic extremism and the fear of maybe being targeted and picked up. But a lot of the places are safer than they were. Take Timbuktu. I can't remember the numbers. You probably know this, Matt, but Timbuktu was a huge goal for Western explorers. And there was a big prize ready for the waiting to be won if, if for the first Westerner to get there. And something like seven explorers died on the way. And then finally one made it, got there, and then was killed on his way out horribly. He's 
head, he was decapitated by somebody taking one end of a shawl and the other one taking the other end and pulling it until his head popped. Um, so that kind of danger we don't think exists. And yet when I went to Timbuktu, I did a TV series about it. I went to Timbuktu. We had a armed, first of all, I had to do hostile environment training to learn what to do if I was kidnapped, if there were bombs, if there were landmines and so on. That was very intimidating. Secondly, we had a security consultant with us. We had a uh, procedure for if anyone stormed the hotel where we would go, the safe room, exactly what would happen. Thirdly, we were in Timbuktu. We had both an army and a national militia, armed guards. I had eight armed guards. So I, there's all this lovely footage of me on BBC Two wandering, looking at buildings and obviously deep in thought. And what you don't see is that on each side of the buildings in that street, there are armed guards and they wouldn't let us go into the desert of Timbuktu, outside Timbuktu, because Al-Qaeda are camped there. And, you know, I'm a, such a juicy target for kid, for what would happen is a, a, a gang might come in, grab me and then sell me to Al-Qaeda as a, as a ransom victim. So I think danger and what was and what is, I find it very interesting because the Middle East now, the bits that I love, a lot of it is now completely inaccessible to us, Iraq, Syria, Libya, for example, all of which, you know, are places I would very much like to explore. I actually had a question on Timbuktu, and it's not necessarily Timbuktu itself, but the idea of it. Timbuktu, for hundreds of years, was seen by the Western world, by Europeans, as this trading center, this very rich place of money yeah. was obviously talks. It was um, a place of for gold and slaves and ivory, and it was a learning center. And then when they finally got to it, and as you said, you know, uh, there was, I think it was a 10,000 pound prize by the, that's right. By the, the, the Royal Geographical Society. And I think it was, maybe I'm getting his first name, I'm Gordon Lang, I think a Scotsman who, yes. who, had his head, as you said, removed. Um, and then a Frenchman, Rene, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it, Calier or C-A-L-I-E-T. Uh -huh. He was the one, and he went disguised as an Arab, I believe. And, and that's how he was the first person to collect that. But he came back and went like, yeah, it's not much. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was well past its prime. And I guess my question is, are there any places like that that you went to, and they have changed so dramatically over the historic, the perspective of time, and maybe not, but uh, is there any place like that where you got there and just went, really, this was what the excitement was about? <laughs> oh, poor places. I mean, I have to say, in Timbuktu's defense, it is a kind of a small, it's a very large town rather than a big city. It's dusty, but it has some fantastic mosques it has the most wonderful library that you know that I was in paroxysms of excitement as I read these law books from the eighth century which had notes from the students at the side and I could read them so in Arabic and I thought this is just like when I was studying Arabic people going what does this mean I felt I hear your pain um are there places I've been that I've been really quite disappointed um not necessarily even disappointed, but they've changed yeah. so different dramatically over the course of, of the centuries. I'm sure there are, are lots and lots of places exactly that. I mean, I've just been in Rome for a little holiday and I'd never been to Rome before. And I'm fascinated by the Roman Empire, you know, 
course. Um, and going there, you know, you go into the Colosseum, which was magnificent. And you have, well, more or less have to take a guide. And you go in and, you know, everyone's in there in their little hats because it's very hot, um, taking millions of photos. People are queuing up to get the best selfie for Instagram. And, you know, it couldn't be more different from what it would have been in its heyday, but it still retained, I felt, a real spirit of those gladiatorial conquests. I mean, in a way, you go to the Colosseum, and by our standards, it's a terrible, evil, vicious, awful place, but it's still got the drama and the excitement. So nowadays, as I say, you know, we're all there taking our selfies, whereas in the olden days, Christians were being ripped apart by lions and gored by bulls but um yeah that was a change my son is a classics major so i've heard all all the stories of rome and greece so um yeah i bet you have <laughs> um you talk about some of the dangerous things in there and in your books and your blog and podcast you have all sorts of great stories some of them scary a lot of them very funny but what are some of your favorite moments or what are the what are the stories that people just always love to hear from you? Well, everyone loves to hear about the camels, to be honest. I think that's the main thing. So we, we uh, I did my expedition across Morocco with six camels. They weren't for riding. They were for carrying our baggage, particularly our water, because it, the, the planet is drying out and we were under water stress. We couldn't always get water. And so my favorite camel is called Hamish. And the, the notable thing about camels is they can be very bad tempered. So I adored Hamish, but it was an unrequited love, Matt. It was unrequited. He, he spent the whole expedition trying to bite me. Um, and I would bribe him. Camels love orange peel, bizarrely. And every day, if we'd been reprovisioned, we have an orange for our 11 seeds. And then we would divide up the orange peel exactly and give it to each camel. Well, I would add D would try and steal all the orange peel and give it to his favorite camel, but that wasn't allowed. So I think people love the stories about the camels and about camel sex, because our poor boys, they were on heat. I don't know if you're aware that it's male camels who go on heat, and it's, a spe- it's kind of November till February. And when they go on heat, all they can think about is sex. And very sadly for our poor male burden camels, baggage camels, they're never allowed to have it. So there was one moment when Hector was full of vim and you can tell the camels in the mood because they do certain things. They spread their back legs, they pee and they whirl their little tails like helicopters and flick the pee up onto their backs. That's their aftershave. And then to make themselves really beautiful to the lady camels, they, they have a big pink bubble in their mouths of skin that they fill with saliva. And when they see a lady camel, they bellow, they roar like lions or bellow like bulls. And they push this big, it's about the size of a small pink balloon. They push it out the side of their mouths. It's filled with foam. So when you're walking at the front, you get covered in camel saliva. And they're very sneaky. So one day we were all having breakfast and Hector managed to get rid of his his, um, halter. And he'd seen a, a female camel in the distance and he'd galloped over towards her. And Congress was about, she'd couched, she'd sat, she'd kneeled down, which is how lady camels prepare themselves for a sexual encounter. And Hector was like galloping towards her until the Mauritanian herdsman who owned the female camel was like, yeah, let out a massive bellow. Because what happened was the minute they saw Hector like galloping eagerly towards this lady and he was really close, 
all the other male camels broke free and were galloping after him. So we had to stop Hector because it would have been a mass rape of this poor female camel. So Adi and Brahim leapt. I have never seen them run so fast. They leapt into action, grabbed Hector by his head, by his, his, um, his nose halter and dragged him off this female camel. And I, I mean, the rest of the day, he just looked so doleful. You know how camels can look with their big eyes. He was obviously just like, I almost got there, but they wouldn't <laughs> let me. That's the, I love of all the places you've been and it's not the view. It's not the thing you discover. It's the camel. It's the camel. That's wonderful. Um, so I know in some of your stories, you talk about finding like the dinosaur footprints. Are there any other discoveries as, as you say that you just went, wow, this was really neat. Well, it's quite interesting. And, and this is something I think is really good to, to discuss actually on this podcast, because we, you can't see me, but I'm putting my fingers like quote marks. I discovered an unmarked, a lost city. And I discovered it purely by chance. But I'm also reluctant to say I discovered it because, of course, nomads occupy all these areas and they will have been walking over that with their flocks since it, it fell into ruin, you know. But the, what, what happened was I, I went up this hill. We were camped in a, in a wadi, a river valley. And we were about five kilometers from a place called Fumshena, where there were some 4,000-year-old rock carvings, quite famous and absolutely magnificent. If you come to Morocco, do not leave without going to Fumshena. It's exciting and you can clamber over the rocks and look at everything at your leisure and discover all of these, you know, discover your own rock carvings, as it were. There are thousands of them. So we were camped before that and I'd gone up this hill, we were camped, a, a river valley, so it was about a... I don't know, 200 meter hill, 300 meter hill. I, I climbed up with great difficulty to get signal so I could phone my mum, um, who hadn't heard from me for a few days. And I was sitting on a phone, on a stone, WhatsApping my mum in the dusk on top of this hill, high place. And I looked out and in front of me, I thought, ah, that's a building. And I just saw what looked very like an old Scottish crofter's house, a four square wall, stone built. Um, another one beside them, and it was quite clearly a dwelling place. Now, when in Morocco, there are lots of Aziz, which is shepherds' dwelling places, and there, but this wasn't one of those. You know, I've seen enough of those to know it wasn't. So I was like, oh. And then I walked around the corner, and it was getting quite dark, and I had to get back to camp before dark, or else the men would have freaked out, like, where is she? Um, also, it's dangerous to go down this cliff in the dark. So I, I went around the corner, and I saw more of these buildings, and I was like, this is something. So I zipped back down to camp and I was like to the men, we've been there, been to Fumshena like hundreds of times because, you know, you can, you don't have to do it as part of a long trek. You can come in from the other side of a, a four by four. And I was like, guys, do you know about this town up on the hill? What is it? And they went, what town? And I was like, oh, <laughs> this town's good. And I went, you know, the town up on the hill, just that. They went, there's no town up there. I went, no, there really is an old town up there. So the next day, Jean-Pierre, my expedition organizer, Jean-Pierre Datchari, who has 40 years of experience in the Moroccan desert. He is a, he's probably the world expert on it, I would say. He's really knowledgeable and he's been all over it, crawled all over the place. And he came and I said, Jean-Pierre, before we go and see the rock carvings, can I take you up this hill to see what I've found? And he was like, oh, don't be ridiculous, Alice. You haven't found anything, there's nothing up there. And I was like, no, honestly, I really have. And I had to put my foot down quite hard. So we went up 
And we had a cameraman with, come in with us just to film the rock carving. So we took him up as well. Everyone was moaning at me. They're like, we've got to get to the rock carving. So I was like, no, 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 it's worth it. So we get up to the top of this hill again, panting our way up. And I'm like, look, Jean-Pierre. And of course, in the daylight, you could see it was a very large settlement going over two hills ahead of us, one hill to our left. And over the other side of the valley, there were also buildings on the right. It was quite clear in daylight that there were streets, you know, there were configurations of houses. And Jean-Pierre, who's French, went, Impressionant, c'est magnifique. And then he got hugely excited and we explored together. And it's somewhere that's not marked on any map. We couldn't find any information about it, but it must, I mean, common sense would tell you that, you know, at some point, those rock carvings, this, this big settlement, obviously built up high for defensive purposes. It was about a kilometer and a half from the river. So water was not a problem. And it's just one of those places that you kind of long to go back with the proper archeologist and, you know, have some information about it. Has someone done that? Or is it kind of like, well, we get all sorts of places like this in, in the, the mountains. So that's low on our list. It's not that, it's that I, I mean, I couldn't find, you know, I say that I discovered this lost city, but, but with all the caveats that I've just mentioned, um, that there's no mentions of it anywhere because we've searched, I've searched as far as I can in English and in Arabic and in French, because Jean-Pierre also did his research. But there are lots of places like that. And Morocco is a treasure trove of undiscovered places and artifacts and rock carvings um but it would be one of those ones i think it would be really fun to go back with some experts and really have a look at it and i would hope to do that one day it's on the list it's on the to-do list the sahara desert has changed quite dramatically over the the, the centuries how's that affecting uh, the, the this area this place that you live in and so forth well th- this is i think if you like, again, just thinking about history, you know, one of the sad things about history is when history comes to an end or is coming to an end. It's a very mournful, I find it a very kind of mournful time. And what's happened is the Sahrawi nomads, the people of the Sahara, have lived there for centuries across the whole of the Sahel. Um, camel herders, sometimes goats and sheep, but particularly camel herders, they live in tents. They herd their camels, they drink the milk, they eat the meat. And the camels have been able to graze on the very thorny, dry shrubbery of the Sahara, but there's been enough to sustain life. And uh, quite a lot of different things have happened. One, desertification is happening at 16% a year. The Sahara itself, which used to sustain life, is drying, so it can no longer sustain life. And if it rains, you know, that whole place just greens up in about three days because there's seeds everywhere. When you're walking, your legs and your ankles get completely covered with dried seeds. But when it doesn't rain, which it doesn't, it's going to die. And we, we, what we found was the desertification meant the wells were drying up, the shrubberies, the shrubbery was too dead even for the camels. And social change, Education is now compulsory at primary level in Morocco. So, for example, the nomads' children had to go to school. So that meant that the women moved to the cities with the children so they could go to school. And the men did kind of bachelor herding. And then the women would come back for weekends or it would be the older women who didn't have children. So many, And then the mobile phone, the advent of the mobile phone. In general, there's a move to urban, right away from rural. 
so what I saw was this way of life, which which is so deeply rooted for millennia is coming to an end or is changing significantly. And that was, I'm not trying to deny anyone progress. And God knows, you know, if you've got teeth that need attention, you want a dentist. So I would never deny anyone progress. But inevitably, as history changes, I think that you're allowed to also mourn what has been and what is passing. And what we're seeing is the passing of a way of life. Let me ask you this. What is the longest adventure or expedition that you ever put together, uh, both distance-wise and time-wise? So cycling across Africa from Cairo to Cape Town took from January till May. So I think that that wins as the longest one. And then, but that was actually a bike race. That was the Tour de Freak, like the Tour de France, but a lot longer. Not harder, but feistier, I suspect. I don't think there are any elephants chasing you in the Tour de France. Um, but the Moroccan one was seven and a half months altogether, but I split it into three. So the longest we were out for that was about just shy of, just shy of three months. How far would, did the Moroccan trip end up being? Again, it's actually very difficult to calculate exactly because you're, you're wiggling about it so much, um, often looking for water. We calculated at around 4,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles. When you're out in the field like that, when you're, you're going thousands of miles, other than water, when you're planning this and when you're out in the field, what are the things that are, are really the most critical things to success? Um, definitely your, your equipment. So both your clothing it has to be comfortable. It has not to rub anywhere. It has to be able to sustain heat and cold. You have to have in correct clothing for heat and for cold. It gets very, very cold at night and your footwear. You must take care of your personal comfort or you're, you're not going to make it. It's not a kind of a vanity thing or a comfort thing, actually. It's like a necessity. So your clothing, your tent... If you have a comfortable tent, absolutely vital. That can, I mean, for example, in Sahara, the sand was so strong all the time. We had to eat in our tent. In the dry expedition, we could eat outside, which is great. But it was boiling hot, but we all clambered in there, cooked in there, ate in there, because we'd have been overwhelmed by sand otherwise. So your tent's very, very important. Transport animals that we had. Um, it's very much, I'd say, your equipment. And then being, I think being very organized and very clear I think organization routine and discipline and then you can play with it but really you want to be very clear about what you're doing and everyone needs to know and then you can progress together as a team what do you miss most when you're out in the field like that what's the thing that you you can't bring but you sit there and go I wish I had this my cats I really miss I really miss my cats. And I actually thought about bringing them on the, you know, I thought, oh, I'll put them in a transporter. And, and then I thought, no, they'll be ripped apart by wild dogs. Also, it's boiling hot. And they're lazy, you know, fat animals that like to sleep. Well, they're not fat at all, actually. Very slim, but they like to sleep all day in the comfort of the house. But that's, that's what I miss. And it's great if you've got animals on an expedition. So like with the camels, that was fantastic because that made up for a bit. But that's, that's the thing I really miss. Are there any explorers or people or stories from history that you love and that perhaps have inspired you to do what you do today? 
And do you have any books that you recommend for people who are interested in this kind of thing? I, I've been very, very inspired by um, people from history. So I think as an adult, well, as a student, I read uh, some of Ibn Battuta, who is the very famous Arabic. I don't know if you've covered him in your podcast yet. Not yet. He's an amazing Arabic explorer who has been around more of the world than Marco Polo. Um, and he was alive in the 1300s and he wrote in Arabic. And he, I just love his books. Both, of course, if you read them in the original Arabic, it's really, you know, you, A, you feel very cool. And B, you get the full flavor. But he has all these stories that really resonated with me. And he also went to Timbuktu. So he's one. Um, when I was younger, when I was like about 13, 14, I got given two books by my dad. Um, one was the Kontiki Expedition by Thor Heyerdahl, you know, traveling in that boat. And I mean, that just stay, has stayed with me all this time. And the second one was Arabian Sands by Wilfred Thesiger. He crossed the empty quarter of Saudi Arabia, well, loosely Saudi Arabia Plus, um, with his Bedou guides on, cam on camelback and he almost died. I would recommend anything by Wolfgang Thesiger because he writes incredibly poetically and powerfully and his crossing was extraordinary. I mean, he, extremely brave, extremely hardy, just a real heroic, you know, a, a hero figure. Certainly a hero. I'm nothing like him. I'm like, if he met me, he'd despise me. You know, I'm far too soft, but he's like a proper hard man of the sands. So him and then my other ones are the female explorers of my region as well. And Freya Stark, you know, disguises herself, gets on a donkey and walks into the valley of the assassins in Syria when they're still working as assassins. Um, and the reason they were called assassins is from the word hashish, because these guys in this particular valley, I'm sure you know this, Matt, in Syria, used to basically get off their faces on hashish and then kill people for other people. You know, she went all over the Middle East on her own. These amazing kind of Victorian, post-Victorian female explorers who just, I mean, they seem to know no fear. They just zip off and you think, oh, goodness, what are you doing? They came to no harm and they've written fantastic books. So I would go Wilfred Thesiger, Freya Stark, anything by them, if you're interested in this particular area. That was fantastic. You have a new book out, so I don't know. Do you want to mention anything about that? Yes, uh, Walking with Nomads. And we haven't sold the American rights yet, but you can get it online. Um, and it's about my expedition across Morocco. So it's it's not my, my last expedition was across Jordan, but books take a while to come out. And I, I think it's quite, it's the kind of read where you'll feel like you're on that expedition with us. So you've done a lot of Morocco and... Um, a lot of Africa. <laughs> and what are your next plans? Do you have any, any, any thoughts? Yeah, of course I have ambitions. So the next two, I've decided I rather like crossing countries and continents. I kind of, it pleases me. Um, so I'm hoping if it comes off to walk across Palestine and I say Palestine because I mean the Palestinian territories, as you know, in, in that part of the world, you have to be quite careful with your language. Um, in, I'm hoping to do that in November. And then my really big aim is to cross Saudi Arabia on foot. I can't promise I'm going to do that. I almost feel bad saying it actually, because it's in the early stages of planning and it's a really complicated endeavor. You don't focus on one mode of transport, I guess, in your life. You've done biking, you've done hiking, you've done um, 
all sorts of different things, mountain climbing. Is there one thing that you really love or one thing that you find really, really difficult that is just really challenging? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm not like the most sporty person or the most, you know, fit person or the slimmest person or the youngest person. So, I mean, the physical side of it does definitely take a toll. Um, But I always reckon, you know, set off, you'll be fine, carry on. And I'm always determined to do more training before I leave. Do I love one? I usually love what I'm doing. So when I'm doing something, I'm like, oh, I love this. And then I change and do something different. But um, you need a lot of energy for cycling. Walking is easier in some ways. Running, I find running the hardest thing, actually. That's just, I, I ran around Everest and that was, I mean, I'm just not very good at it. So I think that's hard. When you, I'm not very good at lots of things that I do. And that you've just got to keep strong and keep doing them rather than let that worry you. That's my top tip, actually, for life. I like to point out it's hard for me to run around my house. So just uh, that you <laughs> that you can do run around Everest means you can do it well, trust me. Um, I guess that wraps up most of the questions uh, I have for you. Do you have anything you want to add uh, about what you do, about the things you've seen or anything like that? I think maybe just to say that one of the things I'm that I'm keen to represent is, you know, how that people, particularly in the areas I work in, you know, Middle East and, and Africa gets a bit of a bad rap, if you like, in the Western press and how much kindness and hospitality and excitement and interest and joy I personally have found in discovering these regions or for myself and communicating them to other places and people sorry to other people and uh, say that there there is a very different conversation to be had than the one that we often see in the press which concentrates on politics and war and terrorism and doesn't concentrate on all the amazing things that actually exist also in these regions. I I will follow up with a with something that it just kind of popped in my head here. And that is, uh, as I as I said at the beginning, you're coming to us from Morocco and you are very kind and you've walked around with your phone and showed me this beautiful, the beautiful hills and valley that you're in. What is it about Morocco that you that you fell in love with, that you that you've lived there now for four years? Yeah, I well, I've lived in this this compound for four years. I've lived in Morocco for eight years. You know, I just fell in love. I, I say to people, a lot of a lot of women especially come to Morocco and they fall in love with the Moroccan man because they're very handsome and very dashing. But I was really greedy because I came to Morocco and fell in love with the whole country. I think the people are, I feel like they're like me. I feel like we're on the same wavelength where you can have the same sense of humor and laugh and chat. And they're so kind and hospitable that it makes life easy. And everyone here is, not everyone, most people are up for it. So, you know, when you say, oh, let's do this or you're excited about something, they're excited with you. So I very much enjoy that. I enjoy the values that I found in this country, the the love for each other, the the hospitality, the kind of communal living. Um, And of course the countryside itself is is extraordinary and it is stuffed full of history. You cannot walk 50 meters in Morocco without stumbling across a piece of history. So it's a very interesting and intriguing place to live. That's fantastic. And I think that's that's a good place for us to wrap up. I do want to mention that you do have a website. It's alicemorrison.co.uk. And there you can find your blog. 
uh, information on all your books, links to your Instagram and Facebook and so forth and so on. So um, is there any place else online that you recommend going for your stuff or is that pretty much take care of it? I think if you go and if you can't remember Alice Morrison, just search Alice Morocco and you will find me. I am. I have managed to become ubiquitous. And I will put a link to the site in the show notes of the podcast, as well as on the website. So uh, on my website uh, for there. So if people are interested, they can definitely find out more about you. So that is it. Uh, We have uh, been talking for the last hour or so with Alice Morrison, our favorite adventurer and explorer from Morocco. And (laughs) (laughs) so Alice, thank you very much for being on the show. I hope you had a good time. And again, just thanks for being here. This was great. Oh, thank you. It's been a huge honor for me to be on your show, which I love. So I'm very excited and enthused. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks very much. And to everyone listening, uh, we will see you next time. Thank you very much. So that is it for our interview with Alice Morrison. She was truly a joy to talk with. The stories we share today are just a fraction of the things she talks about in her books and podcasts and blogs and so forth. A couple of quick notes about our interview. I want to point out that in our conversation, we talked about how in the 1800s, there was a reward for the first Westerner to get into Timbuktu and return alive. I incorrectly said it was a 10,000 pound reward offered by the Royal Geographical Society in London. It was, however, 9,000 francs, and it was offered by the Société de Géographie in Paris. Sorry for that boo-boo. So that's it. Again, many thanks to Alice Morrison for coming on the show and sharing her life with us. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can go to alicemorrison.co.uk if you want to learn more about Alice and her travels. I also put the link on the Explorers podcast website, plus one in the episode's show notes. Thanks again to Alice Morrison, and thank you for joining us. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. If you are interested in other great independent podcasts, go to airwavemedia.com and find out more about the network, including shows such as Into the Impossible and Investors for Beginners. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.